Psalm 130. Over the next three weeks, a few of us will be preaching from the Psalms, and today we're in Psalm 130. It is a Psalm of David where he praises the steadfast love of God. This Psalm has eight verses, and your Bible probably has it split into couplets so that verse 1 and 2 go together, verse 3 and 4, and so on. And so with that structure, that's how we will gain our four points for this morning. So follow along with me as we read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me before we begin. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together to open your word, to read from it, and to learn the spiritual truths that you have graciously given us. Lord, I pray for your spirit to be active this morning, to be with me as I proclaim the word, that your spirit allow me to proclaim it truthfully, faithfully, and with clarity, Lord, and that I do it for your glory. And I pray that your spirit be with the people here today, that you would give them ears to hear, you would give them hearts that would receive the truths of Scripture, and that they too would glorify your name. Amen. The first truth from this passage today is in verse 1 and 2, and we see the depths of God's mercy. Now, when I first entered college at 18, for some reason, I was fascinated by oceanography, which is a nerdy thing of being interested in how the ocean works. I don't know why I liked it, but I did. And one of the things that fascinated me so much was a place called the Mariana Trench. It's a place located off the southeastern coast of Japan, and it's basically a huge crack in the ocean floor. Now, when I say a huge crack, I mean it measures 1,600 miles long and about 40 miles wide. But the most amazing thing about it is its depth. Even to this day, the bottom of it has never been found. With all the technology we have today, the bottom of this trench has never been found. The deepest recorded depth, however, is 36,000 feet. And so to put that in perspective, if you were to place Mount Everest into it, it would still be covered by over a mile of water. It's unfathomable depths. And so as you can imagine, the depths of the Mariana Trench are a place that are cold and lonely. It is a place where there is only darkness, and it is a place where life cannot thrive. And we can imagine that it's in a place like this where David finds his soul in this psalm. It's out of the depths that he's crying to the Lord. 
At one time, he felt the warmth and light of God's presence in his life, but now he feels that his feet have firmly planted themselves on the greatest depths in all the world. His soul has found the bottom of this trench. And the reason is because sin is an anchor. And this anchor once laid hold of will continue to sink you deeper and deeper and deeper until you reach rock bottom. And if you don't believe me, then simply look to David's life. This is the man who, simply going for a walk on his roof, spotted a woman bathing and he began to lust after her. And his lusting led to him having sex with her, which resulted in her becoming pregnant. And since she was married to someone else, he had to cover up his tracks of sin. And so he even plotted to have her husband killed. David grabbed hold of the seemingly small sin of lusting with the eyes and soon found that sin is an anchor which can quickly lead to adultery and murder. Sin is never satisfied, friends, and if it's given the opportunity, it will sink your soul to the depths of hell. So this is precisely why we must be on guard against even the smallest of sins. We're so quick to say, well, this sin's not too burdensome yet. It's not pressing down on me too much yet, and it doesn't seem to be affecting anyone. So I think I'm going to carry it a while longer. But we must rid ourselves of any idea that sin is not deadly, even in small doses. Maybe you're here today, and you feel the weight of sin pressing down on you. Maybe you would even say that your soul is in the depths right along with David. And if that describes you, then look with me in verses 1 and 2 to see what we are to do. We see that David cries out, asking the Lord to hear his voice, and that God would have his ear attentive to the pleas of mercy. But so often when we find ourselves in sin, because of our shame and our guilt, we hide from God. But here we learn that the correct response is not to hide, but to make our pleas known, to cry out to God, and to do so with a sense of urgency. When a child is hungry, they do not cry passively. They cry urgently until that need is met. And so also, as a child of God, you must cry out in your distress urgently to your heavenly Father. Cry and cry and cry until you know that you have been heard and your Father has met your need. So I encourage you, friends, be on guard against even the smallest sins because they're deadly. But when you do find yourselves pulled into the depths, do not hide but be quick to confess your sins, to repent of them, and to turn to God for mercy. It's by repenting that you put off sin and you put on the mercy of God. And the most beautiful thing about these verses here is that although the depths may be as deep as the Mariana Trench, we see that the depths of God's mercy run even deeper. There's no place on earth where the love of God does not extend to. So praise Him that He's not conditional in who He will or will not hear. God does not say, 
if you have only sunk this far, I will hear you please. But once you sink below that, you're dead to me. He would never say that. No matter how far in sin you find yourself, you're never beyond the point of God's mercy. So do not delay in calling out to him. Do not believe you must be at least this good of a person to be a Christian or to be saved or forgiven. In verses 1 and 2, we see the depths of sin and the even greater depths of God's mercy. So now it's in verses 3 and 4 that we're drawn to our second truth. We see that theology is practical. Now before anyone gets too scared, theology simply means studying God. Knowing who God is. It doesn't always have to be sitting around in a circle, stroking your beard, smoking a pipe with abstract philosophies. It's simply reading your Bible and saying, what does this tell me about God? That's theology. So we see theology is practical. And it's here in these verses, we see David reflecting upon who his God is. He brings into focus two main characteristics, that God is both righteous and he's forgiving. Look with me as we see what David says. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And the answer is there's no one that can. He knows that God is completely perfect in his nature. He's completely righteous and separate from sin. And that he will always justly punish that sin. And therefore, there's no one on earth that can stand before God and be found innocent before his eyes. Even if we were to start over every day with a clean slate, there would never be one day when we would go without sinning against our holy God. Listen, there's mornings that before I even start my day, I've already sinned. Whether it's grumbling about the job I have to do, or upset that my daughter woke up at four again. But whatever it is, before I even stand up out of bed, I could not stand before the Lord and not have my iniquities counted against me. We are truly sinful by nature. And all of us fall short of the glory of God. And we see David is fully aware that he too falls short of God's glory. But we also see that he's fully aware that there is forgiveness. Even in his distress and among the depths, he confidently claims forgiveness. Look at the verse with me. He says, there is forgiveness. He doesn't say, I hope there is, or I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and wishing that there's forgiveness. But there is. And how can he know? How can he be so confident? And I'm sure that's a question a few of you may be asking as well. Maybe you've thought, well, I'm guilty of sin. And there's many days I'm not sure if God would forgive me. I wish I had that kind of assurance. I wish I knew that I was forgiven. Well, we see that David's confidence comes from knowing his God. It's because he knows the character and mind and will of the Lord 
that he knows that although God is righteous and must punish sin, that he's also forgiving. It's his theology which sustains his faith. It is the objective truths of Scripture which sustain his subjective circumstances in life. So I'll say it again, friends. Theology is practical. I'm so tired of hearing people say, almost in a dismissive sense, well, you know so-and-so. He's just a theologically-minded Christian. You mean he opens his Bible and figures out who his God is and applies it to his life? That's called being a Christian. That should be the norm. What surprises me is we have so many non-theologically-minded Christians. There are people who have been believers for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years who know little of how their God works. They know they've been saved, and they know they've been forgiven, but beyond that, they're not sure how it was accomplished. They're not sure why it was accomplished. They don't even know what they're to do with their lives once they've received that salvation. They know nothing of how to handle situations that arise in everyday life. And this stems from the fact that they do not know God as well as they should. Now listen, if you don't know much theology, I'm not saying that you cannot be saved. I would never say that. However, I am saying that you're missing out on many of the blessings that God has ordained to give you. It is through the Scripture, it is through knowing Him that He gives blessings to His children. We have people in our congregation today who have experienced very, very difficult times. Whether it's been a parent that has died unexpectedly, a miscarriage or a child who's died from an illness, whether it's been seeing a son or daughter go off into a life of sin, whether it's marital issues or losses of jobs or intense battles with a particular sin, whatever it is, there have been many tears shed by the people in this room today. But in all of this, they found that when they were in the depths of distress, they knew that when they cried out to God for mercy, that He would hear them. They put their theology to practice and endured through the hardships of life because they had knowledge that God is providential, that God is sovereign, that God is gracious and loving, and that even though it may not seem like it, He's working everything together for their good. They had their theology tested by fire and found that not only is it practical, but it's indispensable to their life. If you know any of these people, go to them and ask them, how would you have got through this if it wasn't for God? Theology, knowing who your Lord is, is indispensable to daily life. So I personally want to take the time to thank you You have been a congregation who has put on display the holiness of God. You've trusted His Word. And it has been a very loudly spoken testimony to me and to other people here. 
So I encourage us to continue being a congregation which trusts in the Lord even during the difficult times. Well, do you want to grow spiritually? Do you want to be like these people I just spoke of? Then I encourage you to know God. Even if this is your first time to hear the word theology, or if you know nothing about it, or if you don't even know God at all, that's okay. Don't be discouraged, but decide that today is the day when I will start reading my Bible. I will start searching after the Lord. I will read the Scripture and think about what that passage teaches me. I will pray for understanding. I will read books from other Christians who knew the Lord well. And I will even come to people in this congregation that we can build one another up. If you want to grow spiritually, find someone in our congregation and say, let's learn about God together. Let's do it. Commit to studying the Word. I pray that our congregation would grow in understanding the depths of our sin so that we would be able to understand the depths of how amazing grace truly is. That we would grow in seeing our need for a Savior so that we can grow in seeing the beauty of the blood-stained cross. And when we grow in knowing who God is, we will grow in confidence knowing that God truly is forgiving. So look with me at verse 4 as we even continue further putting theology to practice. In verse 4 we see that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now to clarify when this says fear, it doesn't mean that you should be terrified of God. But it does mean that you should have a willful obedience and reverence towards Him. It's because you understand His mercy and forgiveness that you then willingly submit your life to doing His will. And so we see that a defining characteristic of a Christian who understands their forgiveness is they will have a life marked by fearful obedience to the Lord. Well, friends, do you fear the Lord? Can it be seen in your life? A Christian who thinks he's only been forgiven a little will only see the need for a little obedience. But the one who knows he's been forgiven much will also obey much. So do you fear the Lord? This is a question you must give much personal thought to. And I pray that the Spirit would convict you of this truth and lead you to see the need for obedience to God. Moving on to verse 5 and 6, we see point number 3, that faith means waiting for the promises of God to come to pass. Faith means waiting for the promises of God to come to pass. God has promised forgiveness of sins, and so David resolves in his heart that he will wait for that forgiveness to come. And you see it in verse 5. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And again in verse 6, he says, my soul waits. But what is it that is sustaining his waiting? 
What is he placing his faith in to get him through the time of trouble? Well, the answer is in verse 5. Do you see it? It says, in his word, I hope. What wisdom we learn from David here. It's the word of God which keeps the Christian moving forward in their life. And I know that may not seem like an important observation. You're saying, well, of course a Christian should trust the word. That's nothing new. Well, look at your own life. How often is that not true of you? I know for me, I find that too often I trust in something else. I said it in my last sermon, and I'll say it again. Scripture is not the last place we need to turn to, but the first. It's what we need to place all of our hope in. So let us learn from David here that our faith should be in nothing other than the promises of God found in Scripture. And I want you to know that it's never foolish to trust in those promises. Understand that in the middle of distress, those promises may not seem helpful. And you may not even be able to see how that could possibly be true. But remember, in Joshua, we're told not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made has failed. All of them have come to pass. Well, David had to be reminding himself about truths like this. In his distress, he had to be telling himself, God said he will forgive me, so he must. That's what my hope is in, not myself. He does not look to his own strength to pull himself up out of the depths. Instead, he looks away from himself and towards God. And this is one of the most amazing things about our God is that he will never break a promise he's made. He's completely trustworthy. And so you can know that you can have confidence to wholeheartedly trust in him. This is why David is able to wait. But I don't want us to think that this is a passive kind of waiting. Typically when we say waiting, we're thinking David's just sitting in the depths, twiddling his thumbs and kind of hanging out until God does something. No, this is an active waiting. It's an eager expectation for God to do what he has said he will do. As a kid, there were many days, whether it was my birthday or holiday or whatever the occasion, when my biological father would be coming into town. And I didn't get to see him often. And so on those days, as soon as I woke up, I was eagerly waiting for him to arrive. I would have my face pressed against the window, watching every car drive down the street, thinking, is that him? Is that him? And so it's no surprise that before he would even turn onto my street, I could see the street that adjoined to it, and I could see his black SUV passing through the trees. So before he was even here, I knew, Dad's home. He's here to get me. And that's the eager expectation that we find David in. He's waiting and watching for God to arrive. And you see that in verse 6 there. Look, David says he's watching more than watchmen for the morning. These were the guys who were paid to guard the city. And he's watching more than them. 
He he says, your eyes may be peeled, but mine are peeled even more. I am eagerly watching for God to arrive. But how, how much we hate to wait for anything. If it takes a web page more than three seconds to load, the studies show that we just move on. We can't even wait that long. We lose our interest. But let us not be so quick to lose interest and hope in waiting for the Lord to move. And let us see that waiting for the Lord is often a blessing in our lives. It's because once we've waited, that we receive the blessing all the more gladly. So if you find that you're in a place where you're still waiting, you're still waiting, you've been praying, you've been reading your word, you've been watching, you've been pleading for God to move, do not lose trust. If He has promised it, it will certainly come to pass. So do not be discouraged, but instead see that God in His wisdom is using your waiting as a means to grow you spiritually. He's maturing you by leading you to rely upon His grace. So continue in the faith. Continue in trusting that God will do what He has promised. Moving on to the last two verses, David calls our attention to the greatest promise of all. It is the promise that there is redemption for God's people. When we come to these verses, once again, we see David's confidence to claim the promises of Scripture. Look in your Bible and see it. He says, there is steadfast love. There is plentiful redemption. And the Lord will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. What a blessing it is for the, for the Christian to have certainty of redemption. It's such a blessing that it even empowers David to look past himself and to look towards the interest of others. And that is his theology being put into practice again. If he did not know God and know with certainty he would be forgiven, he would have to look inward to himself. He could only focus on what's going on in his small little bubble. But because he knows God, he can look to others. And I pray that that would be true of our church. That we would not be only focused on ourselves, but that we would be focused on building up our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would be focused on calling them to trust in the promises of Scripture. But if you look back at verse 3, we see a big problem. And it's that God is righteous and none can stand before Him and be found innocent. Another pastor has once said, God is good. And the reason that's such a big problem is because we're not. We're not. So that presents the greatest problem in all the world. How can God be a righteous judge that must punish sin and also be forgiving? How is He going to accomplish that? We see 
that it is through redemption. He will redeem his people from their sin. It is accomplished through placing the punishment of sin upon the only one who has no iniquities, the only one who can stand before God. And it is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can stand in the place of sinners, take the wrath of God upon himself, and give them his innocence. He is the only one that can redeem. We also see that this redemption is a plentiful redemption. That God will redeem all of Israel. That Jesus Christ will die for every sin that is placed upon him. Now you see that David says God will redeem Israel. And we know from the Old Testament that Israel is God's chosen race and His chosen people. And so God will redeem His chosen people. And since God does not change, we know that redemption works the same way today as well. Not every person who's ever lived, not even every person who attends church regularly will be saved. And I hope it's not true when I say this, but probably not even everyone in this room today will find that the blood of Christ has redeemed them. If that makes you uncomfortable, then good. It means you're understanding what I'm saying to you. It means the Bible clearly teaches in this passage and also through the entirety of Scripture that none can stand before God, that all are dead in their sins, and that all are deserving of wrath. But it also teaches that out of God's love, He chose for Himself a certain people to redeem. They were dead but are made alive by the blood of Christ being graciously applied to them. Not of anything they have done, but by God's free choice. The reason this language of God's chosen people becomes so unpopular and uncomfortable is because it directly confronts us with the question, am I one of those people? Do I belong to God? Will, his, will Christ's blood be applied to me? And it's a question which can cause one much distress. But it's a question we must answer because it's the biggest question in all eternity. Graciously though, God does not leave us in the dark without any direction of knowing how to answer that question. It's actually in this psalm that we're given a very detailed example of those that belong to God and are recipients of redemption. Look at the passage, starting at the top. We see those who belong to God's chosen people are those who feel the weight of sin. And they feel that sin's an anchor which has separated them from God. Upon feeling the weight of sin, they repent and turn from it. They see their urgent need to be freed from this anchor they're chained to. And so they cry out to God and plead for His mercy. They acknowledge they don't match up against God's standard of righteousness. But still they seek forgiveness. They see that God's chosen people 
who have received forgiveness are marked with a fear of the Lord, evidenced by a life which grows in obedience and holiness. They will hope in the Word. They will trust in the promises of God because these promises are found in the Bible and they know that they must be true. So their love for the Scriptures will grow as well. They will actively and faithfully trust God as they watch for Him to bring His promises to pass. The most precious and beautiful promise in the page of Scripture will be that Jesus Christ is their Redeemer who has granted them life. And lastly, it will be such a precious truth that they will even be led to tell others about this redemption. They will call others to faith in Christ. I listed ten. So if you're having trouble answering that question, do I belong to God? Look to Psalm 130. Let Psalm 130 guide you in answering this ultimate question. If the Holy Spirit leads you to conclude that this psalm is not true of you, then know that it's loving of God to even make that known to you. He does not leave you in your sins. He does not leave you in the depths. But He tells you plainly how to come to Him. He tells you the path of redemption. And praise God that He would lovingly warn you of the state of your soul. But if this psalm is true of you, then that should be all the more reason for you to praise God every day for the love that He's shown to you. Praise Him that it pleased God to make you a people for His own possession. Praise Him that when you cried out, He heard you and He gave you mercy. Praise Him that He has promised forgiveness and He will fulfill that promise. Praise God that He has sent a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to place His sins upon His Son so that you may have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray.